Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre to wrap up our final Grand Slam of 2022. And what a special one it was. Igish Viontek winning her second slam of the season. And Mike, finally, a brand new champion on the men's side. It's been so long since we've been able to say that. Carlos Alcaraz uh, winning the title at Flushing Meadows. I, I feel like it's a super exciting time for tennis right now. Uh, I feel like it's a time for tennis to capitalize on these winners on both the women's side and the men's side on these storylines, these very positive storylines and these, these great characters of the sport that are emerging and revealing themselves. And I just think it's a, it's a period of time where the, the game is in transition and it's, it's clearly starting to evolve and, and move into a, uh, you know, a time where other players are going to be the ones to capture our imaginations. And I think that's fantastic. I'm not even, I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing. It's a good thing for tennis. It's inevitable. You can't delay it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you probably agree that the people we see that are, you know, picking up the torch and ready to carry the sport forward, for the most part, what we've seen at the U.S. Open have been some fantastic individuals in terms of tennis and personality, too. Yeah, look, um, you know, before we get to to, to the men's side in terms of, uh, I think, the way Carlos Alcaraz, Casper Ruud, Francis Tiafo, all these players, Yannick Sinner, the way they've handled themselves uh, just professionally on and off the court. I think they're all fantastic role models. Uh, I do want to start on the women's side uh, so we don't gloss over, I think, you know, just this unbelievable champion that we've had all season uh, and the domination from world number one, Iga Svantec. And it's interesting coming into the U.S. Open, you look at the season she had compiled. She had the 37 match winning streak, won the French Open again. And yet I think you and I can rightfully admit like she wasn't like high enough on our radar saying like she can go out and win this thing. Yeah, that's right. She wasn't high enough, right? She was on our radar, obviously world yes. number one and what she's done this year. I mean, what she accomplished earlier in the season, winning all those tournaments on clay, on hard court, Miami, Indian Wells, yeah, French Open, uh, mm-hmm. seemed totally unstoppable. But then what we saw after Roland Garros, where she went six wins and four losses and kind of limped through the summer hard court season, uh, losing in her second match in both uh, Toronto and Cincinnati, didn't really inspire us with confidence that she was going to be the favorite that everyone would have pegged her to be earlier in the season. So what she did at the U.S. Open, rising to the occasion, beating Pagula, beating Sabalenka after dropping the first set, and beating uh, Anjabur in the final, obviously, um, to me is super impressive. It uh, doesn't quite measure up to the 37-match win streak. That is just mind-boggling. Um, but really neat how she kind of reversed the course of her season, and when it mattered the most, um, she was the last one standing. Yeah, and and amazing to have, I think, some new hardware for her. She has the two French Opens, now a bit of a mix there in the trophy cabinet with the U.S. Open, which is a, an incredible victory. I know, I think months ago, there was a belief like Iga doesn't love the tennis balls that they use at the U.S. Open, saying like, for that reason, maybe she can't win it. But, uh, you know, she proved all the naysayers wrong with, with her level of tennis, particularly in the first week. She didn't drop a set. And for me, like, that big turning point coming back against Arena Sabalenka in the semifinals. I, I think that was huge. Sabalenka now has been close a couple of times at the U.S. Open. You feel like she's right on the cusp of a slam. I mean, she's she's someone we've been talking about for some time, and she's she's put herself in that position now a, a few times. I was feeling good about Sabalenka, the way she was playing and uh, enjoying herself out there, and, and what a game, and she's made it this far at the U.S. Open before so we knew she was capable of it we've been talking about her being capable to win a 
a slam, particularly on a fast court, a hard court, and it hasn't happened. And uh, I, I think, you know, the double faulting still, the uh, if she could just, she got such a great first serve. She got such a powerful serve. She got such mm-hmm. awesome capabilities there. If that's just something that she can work out, meant I mean, obviously it's it's you know you got to be able to perform it physically on the court, technically on the court. But when you're double faulting to me, and you know you're more the established tennis player than I am, that's a mental thing that needs to be addressed. Hundred percent, hundred percent. That's something between the ears. I know she had. I mean, she had major problems with it at the start of the season. I remember going into the Australian Open stretches where she was double faulting like 15, 17 times in a match. I remember she consulted with uh, Mark Philippoussis, former U.S. Open finalist, if the, I'm the correct. Scud. There, the scud, yeah, yeah, that's right. So good. I mean, great person to to have in your corner to discuss the serve, of course. Um, to where it seemed like she'd ironed out some of the issues. Seven double faults in that semifinal, not disastrous, but sometimes the timeliness of the double fault too matters a lot, right? And they're just those free points that you're giving away when you've got a serve that's as strong as hers. You should be able to have a pretty strong second serve too Mm -hmm. to be able to maybe not get the aces or the free points, but at least dictate the start of that that point even on your second serve. And, um, And we're not seeing that from her yet. So something to continue to work on. And I, I'd be surprised if Sabalenka didn't end up with the slam at some point. I mean, oh, I think so. We had talked about players like Karolina Pliskova and mm-hmm. Alina Svitolina, who's off, uh, you know, about to give birth, I believe, to her, her first child. Um, maybe it's not going to happen for them. Maybe that time has come and gone. But Sabalenka, to me, has just a few more strengths in there that would lend themselves to to becoming a major champion and, and someone that no one wants to go on court and have to face uh let's be honest no and she's she's still just 24 years old right so a, a lot of years ahead of her just a shift in the rankings too i mean Iga Swiatek has an absolute stranglehold on the world number 1 and you look at the points she collected at the US Open she's now up to 10,365 points that's uh about 5200 points clear of number 2 i do love Unreal. the new world number 2 and i think we are ready for a ranking shift here it is on Jabur and for me she's had a fab- season reaching two grand slam finals i think if we look back at both of the finals wimbledon you feel like she kind of missed out on an opportunity here at the u.s open i felt like she was just a little bit outclassed on the court but a- an amazing tournament for her yeah fair to say and uh you know what's amazing to me is that i think maybe we forget she's a little bit older than some of these newer names yep. that have popped up the last couple of years she's 28 years old so i think it's really cool to see a player uh, click at that point in their careers, a point where maybe a lot of people have written them off as having the potential to make it to the upper echelon of the sport. Um, so that's awesome. Again, we see that on the men's side as well with Cam Nori, 27 or so years old, also cracking the top 10 into his later 20s. Um, and for Anz Jabur, again, just off the court, how well respected she is by uh, you know pretty much everybody, so well liked. And when you're Serena Williams' choice to come back and partner up in doubles as well after Serena had taken a year off, I think that speaks volumes too in terms of someone whose personality and game, Serena was just really you know pumped to uh, to partner alongside in her comeback. Yeah, and she handled, I think, the trophy ceremony with so with so much class and, and grace, giving a lot of respect to, to Iga Shpiontek for, for the title. Look, like, before we get to the men's side, I mean, there are a few things I think we got terribly wrong going into this U.S. Open. Oh, uh, Ben, be, why do you got to say that? Why uh, do we got to bring those things up? Be, because I'm going to say we did get a couple things kind of right. So, right, I mean, right. way off the mark with Simona Halep. Without mm-hmm. a doubt, we're just nowhere close. But I do want to say we both... 
very much mentioned, and maybe this was obvious, like we really felt like Caroline Garcia could make a deep run at the U.S. Open. And we talked about Jessica Pagula as well. Caroline Garcia um, runs all the way to the semifinals without dropping a set before losing to Anja Burr and Jessica Pagula uh, quarterfinals before losing to Iga Spiontek. So there's a couple that we got right. All right. I mean, maybe there were a little bit more of the obvious ones, I but uh, we're going to have to dig a little deeper moving forward to see what we can come up with. Uh, but OK, thanks for pointing out some positives, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, I want to mention before we get to the Canadians to Emma Raducanu, obviously very hard to defend your title and. If I recall, she had a pretty tough draw here at the U.S. Open uh, going out in straight sets to Alize Cornet, who gives everybody fits. But she did have a decent hardcourt swing uh, in the summertime. Her ranking will drop off. But, um, you know, she's still a big fan favorite and something cool here. We do have a signed Emma Raducanu ball. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, We've got this thanks to Tennis Canada, which uh, picked up and passed along to us at the National Bank Open in Toronto uh, a month ago. So. Happy to get this out to one of our listeners, one of our Radicanu fans. There's plenty in Canada because she's born in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just to finish off with her here for a moment, I think moving past the U.S. Open for both her and Leila Annie Fernandez, and especially for Emma, uh, will be a good thing. And I think she can probably play yeah. a little more freely now. I think this fall, I mean, she's the number one seed this week in a, in a smaller 250 tournament. Perfect. You know, I think these are the perfect moments for her now to, uh, it's done, you know. She won the U.S. Open. She'll always have that. She doesn't have to worry about defending it now. She can move forward from the spotlight and I think probably, um, you know, just work on the things in her game that that any 20-year-old player, 19, 20-year-old player uh, needs to work on as they continue to develop as a professional. Yeah, that, that's very well said. And she's handled herself so well in, in press, I think, discussing those challenges of like, she's okay to reset and rebuild her ranking. And that's uh, what she'll she'll have to do. And I, I think she's prepared for Layla Annie Fernandez as well. It is going to be quite a drop off she's dropping 26 spots to number 40 for losing those finalist points um her going out i believe second round to uh ludmilla samsonova who was on fire coming into this tournament playing so so well and um if we talk about bianca andrescu for a moment i felt like for her if she can just get you know, a bit of an easier draw at some points. I feel like she's had tough slam draws almost throughout the season. Obviously, you don't have that protection when you're unseated. And she runs into just a red-hot Caroline Garcia, who is kind of blowing everybody off the court at that point. And for Bianca, like, there's only one thing I'm really seeing in her game that isn't clicking yet, which is her serve. And her serve was kind of getting punished that entire match against Garcia. I'm interested to see what Bianca does next. I mean... I don't have the schedule up in front of me, but there isn't a whole lot left in the women's tour, generally speaking, in the fall. Yeah. Um, and I think with the absence of playing in Asia as well, I know there's been some tournaments that have popped up to sort of take their place. But I, I wish there was a little bit more time left for Bianca to uh, to have a big moment this year. Um, I mean, she made the finals on grass against Garcia earlier this summer. That was pretty big, but I'd like to see her lift some hardware for her own confidence moving forward as well. Uh, but I just don't know if there's enough opportunities that are left. And so it'll be interesting to see what kind of schedule she plays. And I really just hope that she finishes off the year feeling physically, um, physically strong, that the body holds up. Um, I think that would be really huge for her too, to go into the off season feeling confident that her body can get her through, um, you know, a good chunk of the season. 
Yeah, definitely. And there were good signs like that second round match where she beat Haddad Maya in straight sets. I thought that was one of the best matches she's played all year um, before going out to Garcia. So there are some positive signs. Uh, of course, we had Gabriela Dabrowski in the mix as always in doubles, getting to the quarterfinals uh, with Juliana Olmos and getting to the round of 16 in mix. I know for her high standards, she she wants more than that, but those are still like, you know, pretty respectable results. Yeah, results that many doubles players would take, you know, any day of the week. So, you know, good for Gabby. But I think, yeah, it'd be nice to see her getting a little bit further along. I mean, a year ago, she was in the, what was it, semis of the U.S. Open, tied 6-6 in the first set with her partner, Louisa Stefani, who went down with a pretty horrific injury on the court mm-hmm. and had to be, uh, she couldn't get off on her own, you know, two feet. And um, the two of them are actually in action this week in Chennai, India, uh, as the number one seed pairing together. And it's Luisa Stefani's first event back since that U.S. Open uh, a year ago. So I don't know if Gabby plans on, you know, resurrecting that partnership or continuing to play with Juliana almost. But her and Stefani really had a great summer of 2021. I, I kind of like their potential a little bit more than what I've seen from her and almost. Um, and we'll see what Gabby can do. But number one seed next to her name. And one other doubles thing real quick on the women's side, Barbara Krejcikova and, uh, and Siniakova um, co- complete their career slam. Uh, with their win over McNally and Townsend in women's doubles. And those two, it kind of felt like it was under, like an underwhelming achievement. I feel like the WTA should have been Not pumping this one up a little yeah. bit more because career slam, they've won what? A gold medal at the Olympics. They've mm-hmm. won Billie Jean King Cup. I mean, holy smokes, they put themselves up there with some of the best doubles players of all time. Yeah, yeah, they're they're an incredible pair in doubles. And uh, I mean, Krejcikova, we know, is a fabulous singles player, especially when she is healthy and playing regularly. We saw what she managed. I mean, last year winning uh, French plus singles and doubles uh, in, in the same uh, in the same two week bracket. So they're a phenomenal team. Siniakova is so impressive, too. Incredible, too. And a backhand so strong at the net. So. Yeah, that's that's quite a, an achievement and unfortunately gets glossed over because it's doubles. But uh, I'm, I'm glad we're giving a shout out to it on, on Matchpoint Canada. I want to quickly mention before we shift to the men's side, because you mentioned Shania Open. Jeannie Bouchard is also playing there in the singles and the doubles. So she's trying to get back to regularly playing, which is great. I'm so happy to see her back. So we'll definitely be mentioning that on next week's pod. Let's move over to the men's side. We've got a new champion and now the youngest. This floors me. The youngest men's number one ever at 19 years and four months, Carlos Alcaraz. Holy smokes, did he ever transition quickly to being like, hey, we should keep an eye on this kid to the world number one and a Grand Slam champ. Just just an unbelievable tournament an exceptional run he spent over 23 hours on court over these past couple weeks so physically how how demanding this tournament was for him to pull this off but if you look from round of 16 on he beats Chilich in five sets he was down a break in the fifth there Yannick Sinner versus Alcaraz in the quarterfinals I think a lot of people will probably circle this one as maybe the match of the year certainly one of the matches of the year he wins that absolute epic fin- finishes at about 245 in the morning that match which is just ridiculous Alcaraz winning that in five sets and a lot of the crowd stuck around uh, beats American Francis Tiafo in the semifinals in five sets and now defeating Casper Ruud 6-4-2-6-7-6-6-3 and I love that that final match just had so much at stake not only for both of them trying to achieve their first Grand Slam title but just having the number one ranking hanging in the balance which I, I thought like created so much great theater i felt a couple years ago when we had the team versus vera final to me it felt like 
you know, the parents were away and the kids had the keys to the car kind of thing, <laughs> yeah. you know, in terms of the like big that. three not being there. Mm -hmm. And this final, I didn't think for one moment, Ben, like, oh, we don't have Federer, Djokovic, or Nadal. Not one single moment. These two owned it and carried it on their own and sustained it. And I feel like, yeah, not that I was feeling, oh, how's tennis going to be after the big three? But I'm feeling like as excited and optimistic as ever. Um, I can't say I stayed up every night and watched all those matches. But I would get text. This is also what makes me feel pretty confident for the future of men's tennis. I got texts from my dad, who's like 79 years old. He's like, are you watching this? Mm -hmm. And I didn't get the text till the next morning because I'd already gone to bed. But like if someone like my dad is staying up, who's seen all sorts of generations of tennis players come through from Connors, McEnroe, all the, you know, all sorts. Even some I'm probably not thinking of back in the days of black and white. But sorry, dad, if you're listening. But, uh, you know, this inspires me that if he's going to stay up and watch these matches, yeah, I think tennis is going to be okay. Absolutely. I, I can't tell you the number of people who were asking me after that match happened because I, I was coaching coaching at a tennis club the following day and like the Sinner versus Alcaraz five-set thriller, that was the talk of the club. Everybody was discussing this match. Everybody was asking me, well, what were your thoughts? Like, did you see this? It was incredible. And, you know, that's a telltale sign that the level was incredibly high. And you're right. It, it didn't really cross my mind, I, I think, once we got especially with that match in the quarterfinal stage and on semifinals final, like, yes, you're thinking, okay, we're getting a new champion. You know, the big three are not here. Nadal gets knocked out by Francis Tiafo, but it like, apart from that, it wasn't crossing my mind that like, Oh no, like this is such a, such a change. It was, it was just exciting. Absolutely. And, and Alcaraz who afterwards said like, Hey, there's no time to be tired. What a work ethic this kid has. And all those five-set matches, Chilich, Sinner, Tiafo, uh, incredible. And there's obvious comparisons to be made to another Spaniard um, that's won several U.S. Open titles. And and for great reason. It's just that that mentality. I don't know if it's a, a Spanish thing or not, or if he's kind of tried to follow in Nadal's footsteps in that sense. But that guy was never going to quit. So, yeah, I'm super excited. Uh, I hope the ATP and for the women's players that are coming along too, I hope both the tours just market them properly, go and pump them up, get them totally. out there in the spotlight, market the right people, okay, the ones who are good on court and off, please, if you can do that too. Um, and, and let's not forget about Casper Ruud, who you got to interview last year, a year ago at the National Bank Open. Boy, he's come a long way since then and really, really proved himself. I never would have guessed um, for 2022 we'd be talking about two Grand Slam finals in a calendar season. That's incredible. And it's super well-deserved. And at the time we had that conversation, I think we were basically talking about his transition moving from the clay court swing to the hard court swing because he had posted those amazing clay court results. He had that stretch winning three ATP 250s in a row on clay. And we were discussing like, okay, like how hard is it for you to come to this new surface? And he was pretty humble about it. He was like, I, I think I can play well on this surface. I, I think I can do well, you know, and, and he is a very humble personality. I think he's super likable uh, as a player um, on and off the court. I like his game. It's very complete. And it's almost like he's been flying under the radar all, all season long, yet posting these incredible results like French Open final was was unbelievable and, and some big time wins to get to the final here 
you know, I, th I think the quarterfinal sort of stands out to me in the sense that I think Matteo Berrettini, people thought maybe that's Berrettini's match to win. And he beat him handily in straight sets, six one six four seven six. Hatchinoff, I, I think that was like an exciting new semifinal and Kasparu was just too solid for him. Hatchinoff couldn't hit through him. And then a very competitive final. Alcaraz just had a, a couple too many tools to deal with. I think being underrated is partly just because he is so soft-spoken. Yeah. Um, right? Like, he's not flashy like a Berrettini. Mm -hmm. um, and and he reminds me a bit like a Hubert Hurkacz in that sense. You remember Hurkacz when he won his uh, Masters 1000? I forget, like, hardly anyone came. Miami? To, yeah, yeah. My, hardly anyone came to press afterwards. And I think it's, it's just because they're a little bit more quiet. But, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm so impressed with him and how he handles himself. And, uh, yeah, I'm a Casper Rude fan. I'm excited to see what he does next. And, um, and, and again, these names that are coming out, um, uh, it's just, it's terrific to see the depth that's there. And, uh, and I'm just excited by what happens next. And I got to say the U S open is the unpredictable slam when it comes to, uh, you know, men's tennis over the years, I'm going to skewer the stats a little bit here for my narrative, but since 2006, and I'm going to use the big four just to further enhance my point here. Okay. But since 2006, uh, Aussie open French open Wimbledon has not had a final without one member of the big four. And the U.S. Open has had three of them now, from wow. 2014's Chilich Nishikori, mm -hmm. the Zverev team one that we mentioned a few moments ago, and now Alcaraz against Rude. And I don't know what it is about the end of the year, if maybe those older guys just get a little more tired or, or what mm -hmm. have you, but I, I love that the U.S. Open has offered us these, these rare glimpses into other competitors trying to hoist a big trophy and uh, and this one was my my favorite to date between those three for sure. Yeah, it was it was electric. And uh, just to touch on as well, American Francis Tiafo, who had, of course, the big upset of the tournament, taking out Rafael Nadal in the round of 16, one uh, took it one match further, defeating Andre Rublev to get to the semifinals and became the first American man actually to reach the U.S. Open semifinals since 2006. So it has been a substantial amount of time since we've seen an American make a deep run at Flushing Meadows. And I, I just think for those who haven't really read his backstory, um, you know, he's he's from parents who are uh, from Sierra Leone who immigrated at one point. His father was was working in a, a Maryland sort of tennis facility as an on site custodian. And they were trying to just get him to, to play for free somehow. Somehow he was just sort of hanging out at this facility. So for, for him to achieve something as fantastic as a semifinal come so close as well against Alcaraz in, in the semis. Um, he has a remarkable backstory and he is such an entertainer on court too. the kind of entertainer I like because he is kind and respectful absolutely and uh, he's fun and press too i mean he had a great press conference here in toronto a few years ago where he talked about someone asked him about his canadian girlfriend and he went on this long long explanation of how they met and everything and the courtship and it was like way more than the question was asking for but it was just so good natured and so fun and uh you know to me he know he only had one quarterfinal appearance at a slam prior to this 2019 at the aussie open uh, he's only 24 years old. I feel like he's mm -hmm. been around a lot longer, but great to see him have this kind of result. And I was also really impressed with him giving, uh, you know, sort of like a tribute to Serena in his press conference when he was wearing the, the goat hoodie with all of her slam wins on the back. I thought that was really cool as well in Serena's, what we think is her final slam of her career. So yeah, Francis TFO, two thumbs up. Um, going to be watching him as well the rest of this year. See if he can consolidate on this and get that ranking up to even more of a career high, which uh, I'm assuming it's going to be after these two weeks.
Yeah. And um, just to touch on obviously him defeating Rafael Nadal, I, I think we had seen how the draw was shaking out, particularly in the early stages after his first few wins. He really rolled past Richard Gasquet. We were thinking maybe Nadal is the guy to beat here. And Tiafo was like a step quicker on it the entire match. And quickly Nadal heading back home to Spain. Do you view this like, is this that much of a setback for him? Do you think he's back on court in 2022, like playing a couple tournaments before the ATP finals? That's sort of a question mark because uh, his wife is uh, also about to have a baby. Yeah. And I felt like there were some complications or some concerns there mm -hmm. at some point as well. So, Hey, look, if I'm Rafa Nadal, that's it. I'm shutting down my year and I'm focusing on, you know, a super exciting part of life, which is the, the birth of, of his first son and becoming a dad and starting a family and resting the body as well, which has taken, as per usual, a huge beating in 2022. So yeah. nothing left to prove there. Save it up, come back strong next year. There's only so many years left. So why tax the body anymore when it's not needed? And you've got all sorts of great stuff happening in your personal life too. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly accurate. You're listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We will wrap um, with Davis Cup, which has now arrived, and Canada is drawn in Group B for the Davis Cup Finals with Spain, Korea, and Serbia, which is a pretty stacked group, to be honest. Now, the key reinforcement that is arriving for the Canadian team, Felix Auger-Aliassim, will be back in the mix competing uh, in the tie for Canada. I believe we also have Vashik Pospisil, along with Alexi Gallarno. Gabriel Diallo is a newcomer, so... An interesting mishmash, but Felix and Vashik, uh, of course, they made uh, a lot of noise being part of that 2019 team, which got to the finals, particularly Vashik. So nice to have those two there. Killer draw. And I really felt like Canada was up the creek without a paddle until Felix said he was coming to the rescue. Yeah. <laughs> no disrespect to the kids and, and Vashik Pospisil, who hasn't been playing his strongest tennis of late. Mm -hmm. At least now Vashik has some help. Felix has got to win those singles matches. Vashik has got to get hot in doubles. And we got a chance. But uh, Spain, Serbia, I guess it really depends who's who's going. Uh, I know you're speaking with a couple of the young Canadians this week. So yep. check back with us for some of those Davis Cup interviews. And uh, that's it on the slams for this year. We got some international competition. We got a few other tournaments that we'll be keeping an eye on. Some great guests, some good giveaways, including that Emma Raducanu ball, which uh, we'll give details on our social media on how you can enter that one. Um, but that's a wrap from New York, I guess, Ben. Yeah, wrap from our final slam of the season, which is always a little bit bittersweet, but the tennis season does carry on. So does Matchpoint Canada. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>